I would remind you of the words of Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, where the writer of Hebrews says, the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even as far as dividing soul from spirit like joints from marrow, as a judge or critic of the thoughts and intents of the heart. We studied about the heart of man and God's opinion of it last hour. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter uh, 3, verse 16, it's easy to remember 3.16, all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work, mature, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Apostle Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 to study, to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needs not be ashamed by rightly handling the word of truth. And the Apostle Peter concludes all his remarks, everything that he says to the church verbally, or I should say in his writing, we don't know what he said verbally, but everything the Apostle Peter wrote to the body of Christ, he concludes with the great words of 2 Peter 3, 18, but... Furthermore, this is the conclusion. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Spiritual growth is the obvious expectation for the new birth. The idea of an infant who is born and doesn't immediately begin to grow is a horrible thing. It's a horror for parents who are struggling to see if that their baby do well. Stunted growth is a problem, and uh, we are very wise to take all medical necessity to help with nutrition and take care of somebody who is not growing as they should. When you see a child that's not growing, and we just had a baby the other day, um, they weigh the baby. Weigh the baby at the beginning, baby loses weight at first, and baby starts to gain weight and all that. Our baby's gaining weight. We're very grateful. And... um, and even though she's a little girl, it's still good to say she's gaining weight. And um, Come on, y'all, that's pretty funny. Anyway, um, when, when you grow, okay, um, physically you can see it is what I'm saying. That little girl is starting to get the little thigh, um, you know, the little thigh uh, pudgy, the best. It, the, it means things are going well. We're so thankful. We're, God is so good to us. You can see it. You can see when children, infants, babies, or, or adolescents even, you can see when they grow. But to watch spiritual growth, that's a much more subtle proposition. Thankfully, I'm my child's parent, but I'm not your spiritual father. God is. He wants you to grow. He wants you to develop. He wants you to mature. I was listening to a podcast the other day about, um, about training children. It was by this Navy SEAL guy. And he was talking to his teenager, and his teenager was griping about the training. I don't want to do any more pull-ups. And he was like 15 or something. And he said, Dad, there are kids that can't even do one pull-up. And that was supposed to excuse him from further training that day. And he's like, I don't care about the other kids. You you need to do what I'm assigning to you because we're going to, it's what you can do. We're going to maximize your abilities. And I thought, man, when I was 15, I couldn't do a pull up. <laughs> can you imagine growing up to be fully developed but weak? 
like you're, you're grown, but you can't, you can't use the machine, the equipment God gave you? Can you imagine being, maybe some of you are wish you weren't imagining it, that you feel weak and you're not strong because your body's weak. Well, but wouldn't it be great to be grown physically and able to do the work that you're called to do? The illustration of trying to clumsily stumble through here is really your spiritual growth. You can't do the adult work if you're not an adult. You can't lift an adult load if you're not an adult. You just don't have it. How are we going to get there? How does spiritual growth happen? There are no shortcuts. It doesn't happen from listening to this guy here for a little bit and this guy here for a little bit and this guy here for a little bit. That's not how it works either. Spiritual growth is a radical grasping of God's word. It's radical attention to the word of God. And it's so, it's so, and that's just the first step. It is a radical attention, growing grace in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, such that you're actually laying hold of God through his word. You're after him. And it's your first and highest priority, and it's what you're after all the time. And then, as you're trusting him, as you're talking to him, as you're thinking on these things, meditating on these things, you're putting them into practice. It's, there's a nutrition phase to this development, but there's also a, an exercise phase. There's a resistance and, and going through the motions of, not going through motions, but putting it into practice. Studying an exercise is much different than doing the exercise. Eating a meal that would be fit for a, an Olympian athlete, well, that's good if you are going to go do an Olympian athlete's exercise. And I think this is the, one of the explanations for the, uh, the, the infancy of the church in our time. It was true in Paul's day. It was true in the writer of Hebrews. You're, you're still babies in Christ. You should be mature by now in Hebrews 5. I think one of the explanations is that um, Olympian diet or big uh, Olympic athlete diet, I mean, is gonna be a, an Olympic athlete performance or else it's gonna be what? Stored energy. <laughs> Just in time for winter, you know? A little extra blubber there. We don't need it. But that's, see, that, if, if I'm right about the illustration of spiritual food and spiritual development, you got to put it to practice, and it's hard. Because the things God wants you to do take you out of your comfort zone, and you're afraid of losing comfort. You're afraid of being uncomfortable. You're, some of you are afraid of that and don't even know it, and it's your deepest fear, it's the boogeyman that you don't even address, but it's, it's there all the time and you're constantly serving it. But if you let go of comfort and say, that's not my priority, if we'll say, actually God's word is my priority and I'll be uncomfortable if I'm not on mission, if I'm off duty, if I'm, not, if I'm AWOL from his service, if I'm not doing what he wants me to do, that's where my discomfort really is. If you get like that, if we get like that, then um, I, I suspect we'll be performing at a level that the nutrition is calling us to perform. So there's my challenge to you. Merry Christmas season. We look forward to seeing you tonight at the, at the concert. But my challenge is that we're supposed to grow spiritually, and there is no shortcut. It takes the nutrition, and it takes the putting it in to practice. So please turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And we're learning about the Lord's kingdom platform, what he 
interprets the Mosaic law to be about. We've discussed in the Beatitudes the portrait of someone who's getting it right, the portrait of a disciple, portrait of the Lord Jesus. Um, in a sense, it's, he really doesn't need to mourn about his spiritual poverty, but we do. So it's not a portrait of him, it's a portrait of his disciples and the Beatitudes. And um, we spent a lot of time reflecting on that. We talked about the nature of discipleship in verse 13 through 16. Being the salt of the earth and the light of the world, we talked about that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by absolutely no means enter the kingdom. That there is a call to righteousness And he isn't parsing out whether you're declared righteous or righteous in your practices. He sees it all of a piece. And we're not. If we're not righteous in our practices, we're not righteous. And so what that does is what the law does. It kills you. You need a savior. You need God's righteousness applied to you because you're not righteous in yourself. And that's a big problem for Christendom. We all have a way of seeing ourselves where we're right or we're righteous and we're not. We all have a way of saying, I've met my own standards, aren't I good enough? And the Bible says, no, you're looking at the wrong standards. The infinite righteousness of God is a standard and we don't measure up. So we're mourn, we mourn, we're poor of spirit. You see it? That's the idea of the law and righteousness as the apostle Paul elaborates on this teaching. The law killed me. And so we've been talking through the various aspects of the law in Matthew 5 that Jesus teaches. I have to confess to you that I'm very anxious to get to Matthew chapter 6 because I want to talk about provision and logistical need and God's priorities and his concept of rewarding. I really want to talk about that, but we have to pause a little bit longer and conclude Matthew chapter 5. Let me see if I can summarize it. Murder, adultery, divorce, vows, where we concluded last time, verses 33 through 37. The law of retaliation where we begin today and the love of one's neighbor. All of these are reflections as the Mosaic law was and is of God's righteousness, all reflections in some sense of God's righteousness and getting to the heart of the thing is Jesus' point throughout this discourse. He wants them to move past the physical and think about the spiritual and the heart. So when we get to verse 38, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to whom he asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. New American Standard, Matthew um, five thirty-eight through 42. I have written on the screen there the words lex talionis. I don't know Latin, I just know that this is what they call this in Latin. Lex is law, I know that, and talionis is retaliation. This is the Lord Jesus teaching on the law of retaliation, which is an interesting, significant feature of the Mosaic law. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And he launches from that concept in the law to get to the heart of the matter and being a gracious person 
and being willing to submit to God and not so worried about whether you get your propers, whether you get what's coming to you. Throughout the discipleship discourses, Jesus has this theme, and we all need to get hold of it, and in some cases, or if not all cases at times, we need to repent about it to change our minds. We do not want to let go of ourselves and trust ourselves to God that he has hold of us. We want to hang on to ourselves and not let God have what he wants from us. And this passage is going to help with this. Let it go. You are not throwing yourself away when you throw yourself on the mercy of God. You're not throwing your life or your prospects or your hopes or your dreams away when you say, God, it's all for you. I throw it at your feet. You are giving eternal significance to your hopes, to your dreams, to your person, to your life, to your choices when you put yourself in the care of God. This is what Jesus teaches when he says, if you, if you lose your life for my sake, you found it. That, that idea, it's counterintuitive and it's scary. And it's the little trust game that you play with the corporate uh, you know, team building thing where the kid falls back and you catch him as a group, right? Unless you want the kid to have skull fracture. You, you know, he's up on the platform and he falls and the whole team catches him. It's scary to do that. The first kid, the first person that gets up to do it, he falls in the most weird, convoluted way. He's going to injure his back by trying to catch himself. It's scary to trust God. It's scary to let yourself go and give yourself to him and just say, God, you have it. I believe in you. But that's the faith of discipleship. That's what God is calling us to who are saved by grace through faith in Christ. Listen, if you've entrusted yourself to Christ or trusted Christ with the salvation of your soul, that he alone did it and you can't do it for yourself. If you've trusted that Jesus paid for your sins and there's no hope that you have of earning his salvation through your works, if you've actually understood the gospel and completely left everything to Christ and put yourself wholly trusting in him, then this gets a lot easier if you think it through. I mean, I've given him eternity. I've, I've, I've reposed my eternal destiny in him that he's got it and I'm trusting alone in him for my eternal life. Okay, so my temporal needs, my money, my, my friendships, my relationships, whatever, the th- I can give that to him too. That's much less. It's hi- historically, I don't know Latin, but it's called a fortiori. The a fortiori argument, I think you should know it. That's why I say it in this case. A fortiori is for stronger reason or that's a stronger, the, the word forte is strong. It's, it's for a stronger reason. If you can trust Christ with your eternal destiny, then you can trust uh, Christ with your needs, with your temporal circumstance, with whether you get defrauded or not. And, and we know the Apostle Paul teaches, for example, about lawfare, about taking Christians to court in 1 Corinthians 6. You don't do this because you don't put unbelievers to judge over those who someday will judge the angels, Paul says. You, he says something radical and crazy and it bothers us, but it's not. He says it's better to be defrauded than to deny Christ in public. It's better to be defrauded than to deny Christ in public. We all kind of read past that one real fast and get to something we want to hear. It's better to be defrauded than to, than to deny Christ publicly in court. And this is the kind of talk, the kind of thought that we're having here. So when we're the kind of person that insists on getting ours, we all struggle with it. And I mean me, and I mean you, and we struggle with our right place and being treated the way we want to be treated. If that's our topic, if that's our goal, we need to just let it go. Jesus put on the towel and humbled himself in the position of slave 
as the Lord of all to wash their feet. And we do this not in submission to the authority of those under us, of course, Jesus never did, but in submitting our preferences, our comforts for their sake, for, the, for God's interests. Let's dig a little bit into this section of the law of retaliation. You've heard that it was said. Ophthalmon anti ophthalmu. Ophthalmon, ophthalmon. What is an ophthalmos? See, you know Greek. An ophthalmologist is somebody that looks at your ophthalmos, your eye. And that's the language here. Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Um, you, you probably, you're really, I know you're really interested in this. Odonta anti odontos. What's an odontos? What is that? It's where you get dental. You just change the vowels around. There's nothing new under the sun. It just means tooth. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That sounds pretty rough, doesn't it? That you're going to cut someone's eye out if, if, they hurt your, if, if they hurt your eye, you're going to take their eye. Isn't that pretty rough? Well, actually, it's really not, and I'll tell you why. Because the law of retaliation, going back to Genesis, I tell you, you wives of Lamech, Lamech says, I have killed a boy for wounding me. See, what we do is someone takes our eye and we kill them. And that is how we are. We're overkill. We escalate. Nope, that's not justice. Justice is an eye for an eye. Lex talionis, in other words, the law of retaliation in the scriptures restricts what can be done to a just reprisal. It's a just consequence. So when you think of it that way, an eye, a death for an eye, no. It's an eye for an eye. That's what this means. And that's the spirit of that law. So you're getting what is due and no more than is due. And that's the principle. Now, the idea of how many people in world history under Israelite law had their eyes put out because they put someone else's eye out. How many times did that happen? We don't have any record of this. There's a principle that's being shown. You only bring reprisal to the level of the offense. That's, that's the idea when someone has been wronged. And the concept is that you've been wronged. They hurt me. Well, how much? I'm going to try to figure out a number, <laughs> right? And as soon as my number is determined, they're going to give me my number back. That kind of idea. And, and when we're hurt, we want to get reprisal. We want the, the, the scales to be balanced. And Jesus is going to say, we are going to live beyond and above they can only, you can only do what the person did back to you. You can only get them back. We're going to live beyond that to disregarding ourselves because the spirit of the law is that God has me and I'm trusting him. It's always faith. But I'm saying to you not to resist the evil person, but whoever strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him also the other. Would you do me a favor? I need a physical demonstration for this one. Would you? please not not you it's going to be somebody and, and you get to do the striking come on come on it's gonna be great yeah yeah come on up come on. yeah he's so excited he's like yay come on up come on okay okay so when we read this we we ask i'm always asked come on get, so that's the middle right there so you gotta get right yeah there we go when we, you're i'm just taking it you're not you're gonna you're gonna dish it out okay so just so everybody's clear on how that works. So um, when, when people talk about this, 
they use it for all kinds of, um, of misunderstanding. This is not saying that we're supposed to be rolled over by a, a, a person that is attacking us. We're, this is not against self-defense. This is actually the highest possible level of, of, of offense you can give that is, that is simply an insult. It's the highest insult. And that's really important to understand. This is not the verse in the Bible that says you can't defend yourself. Um, so, okay, so raise your right hand. Okay, so, so you see his right hand? Most people are right-handed or left-handed. I think the last study, I, the, the most comprehensive study in the world said 16% or less. Maybe it's, maybe it's a lot less or, or left-handed. So most people are right-handed, right? So, so touch your right cheek. My right cheek is right here. Okay, so that's your right cheek. See how we're mirror image of, images of each other? Oh, we kind of are. All right, so. <laughs> okay, so use your right hand to slap my cheek. I mean, pretend. I mean, pretend. Use your right hand. Okay, so, so if he gives me a slap, okay, we've got a problem with the verse. Right? Why? Just flatten. Don't, no, no, no knuckles. So if he gives me a slap, that's death, right? No. That's, <laughs> that's, the, that's the right hand hits the left cheek when you're looking. For him to slap me that way on the right cheek, it would have to be slapping me behind my back, which is not what he's talking about. Everybody seeing the, the mirror image stuff? But it says, what does it say right here? Whoever strikes you on the right cheek. Whoever strikes you on the right cheek. So how could a right-handed person strike me on the right cheek? That's my left cheek. How's he going to do it? Uh-huh. Yeah. This is as nasty as it gets in terms of offense, that they give you the back of their hand. And that's what this is. That's what he's saying. And it has to be what he's saying because of the Greek. He says the right. Everybody with me? It's a strong offense. It is not a left jab, right cross, left hook, uppercut combination. It's not that, right? It's not an attack. It's not a person invading your house at night. Jesus did say by a sword, right? This is is a heavy, heavy offense or an insult. Thank you, sir. Round of applause for my slapper. That worked out better than I thought it would. (laughs) Whoever strikes you on the right cheek, turn him also the other. This is saying that when you are insulted deeply, just take it. Don't offer an insult for insult. You just take it. You want to hit me there? Here's this one too. And so um, now right cheek, left cheek. That, That worked out pretty well. You could just kind of go ahead and back and forth with you. That's the idea. Turned him also the other. Uh, Where in Jesus' life does he demonstrate this? That he's horribly insulted, but he gives no response. This is the cross. And 1 Peter chapter 2 is super explicit about this, but we we have to read it. 1 Peter 2, I'll just go there real quick. I'm going to keep my Bible's place in Matthew chapter 5. Hebrews, got to 1 John too far, 1 Peter chapter 2. When he says in verse 20, talking to servants suffering under unfair masters, it's it's an unfair authority context. For what credit is there if when you sin or are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. So this is the same concept that you're being misused But in faith, you're not reactive to that. You're responding to God. That's 
the same idea. For you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you. And by suffering for you, which he died in your place, he left an example for you to follow in his steps. You're not saved by following his example. You don't go to the cross and save yourself. But since he is your savior from your sins, living the life that is now Christ, you follow in his steps, being saved. And this is who he was. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth in Isaiah 53. And while being reviled, what is reviling? What does that mean? It's verbal insult. It's somebody attacking you verbally. Being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Okay, think with me. You're in the struggle. Someone's reviling. It hurts. It hurts deeply. What are you supposed to do if you're going to follow the pattern of Jesus? You keep on entrusting yourself to whom? God the Father, to him who judges righteously. That's what Jesus did. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep and now you have returned to the pastor and overseer of your souls. I know your Bible says shepherd and guardian, but the Latin is pastor, poimen, shepherd, pastor, same thing. Guardian, that's overseer. That's three, two of the three words for pastors. Pastor, overseer, elder. Episcopos, overseer, same thing. He's that. He's the ultimate. The doctrine of pastor in the Bible is about Jesus. And so what we're learning in thinking this through, we have an attitude that Jesus carried, and he's teaching that as his attitude for us to assimilate in 1 Peter 2. This is Jesus teaching the same thing here. Whoever strikes you on the right cheek, turn him also the other. And to the one who wants for you to be judged, literally, he wants he fellows, he wants, the word for wanting, for you to be crinoed, to be judged, passive. And your katona, not your sword, your shirt, to take. He wants to, to take your shirt in court. So he's going to take you to court and win your shirt from you. He owes me his shirt. He's going to say, don't even let it go to court. Just don't worry about it. He says, release to him also the outer garment. Here's my shirt and my cloak. Let it go is the idea. Don't get into these fights. It's kind of like judo. It's kind of like the, the force is coming. Okay, just go with it. And that's the attitude that you want to take. And he's not telling you to be a doormat. I'm not saying to roll over when someone opposes you. But watch this. Your opposition really doesn't need to be about your worry for yourself. That's the hard thing. That's the hard. I'm going to look out for myself. Let's let God look out for us. The Lord is my shepherd. And what's the consequence of that? I will not want. We're going to be fine because we have our shepherd. And this is a faith, an article of faith. The whole of the law by God's design was the one giving it is trustworthy. So we trust him. So we do what he asks. That's the whole deal in obedience. And today, not under the law, in the law of the spirit, walking by the spirit against such things, there's no law. We're still obeying by faith. It's still faith, obedience, and what God has said. Whoever forces you into service for one mile, this is well known. Maybe you've heard this before. The Roman legionary, a Roman soldier, could take any subject of the Roman Empire and require him to carry his gear as one of these rules. Like quartering troops here, like the British could, when they brought their military to New England and, um, you know, to help, uh, help us pay our taxes and stuff, the, um, 
the, the idea was that the troops could live in the people's houses and, you know, eat a modest amount of their food or all of it and do whatever they wanted because they're military, they're armed, they have the force. And so might makes right and um, all that. And so this is the idea of the military guy that you're under oppression and he can, he can, do you want to work for their pagan? Do you want for the Roman guy to tell you to stop doing what you're doing for God and start working for me? You don't want to do that. But for the Lord's sake, sure, let's go. Now, I have a question. As one who represents Jesus Christ, in this case, before Jesus died for our sins, represents Yahweh, the God of Israel, as a representative of the nation that worships God and serves him, if a pagan Roman tells you to carry his stuff, do you have anything you might be thinking about while you're carrying it? What if he wants to talk to you? Why are you Jews always causing problems here? What if he starts up a conversation with you? What if he is interested or just bored? And so here we go on this mile walk with your pack. Jesus is about to say it's going to be two. Go two miles. Do you have anything you might do during that? Because see, it's not about whether you're being treated well. It's whether you're on mission. And I just, I'm interested that this is a conversation moment between two human beings. Who knows what God could do? But... Um, but he says, just, yeah, judo principle. Just don't insist on your propers. Let it go. And that's the attitude that you have. God has me. Now, I've seen a, a pagan um, or secularist, I'm not sure which, say this is how you can mess with Christians. As you go up to them, ask them for their shirt. And then they, can, they have to give it to you because there's a law here. And that would be to misunderstand what Jesus is doing because he's actually teaching the spirit of the law. You're not supposed to conform to the letter of the law outside of its spirit. You're supposed to conform to the spirit of the law, which would include the letter. So that's the way to think about that. I'm sorry, I'm not here for cynical parlor tricks. Do you need some help from me? That's the, that's the answer when, when you get somebody trying to force a legalistic interpretation of this onto you without acknowledging its spirit. I'm actually here for you. I'd love to talk. Do you have something I can help you with? And, and it, at least in that inconvenience moment of your life, there can be prayer and there can be compassion and there can be honesty um, with that person. I'm praying all the time. Give me a, an entry. Give, me some, give us an open door to talk to people, right? I know they're generally rejecting the message, but... Maybe, maybe the, there's some that won't. Maybe the Lord will direct our steps to people that need to hear. That's what we're about. That's the mission. So whoever forces you into service for one mile, go with them too. To him who asks, you give. The one who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. We're open-handed. We're giving people. We're helpful. This is what the, the appeal for the Christmas uh, thing. And, and there's, th this is a, a challenge, again, because of the legalistic versus the spirit of the thing. What's he actually talking about? You know, every church that I know of gets calls all the time. We didn't manage our money well. We have bought way too many cigarettes and, and alcohol, and we need you to pay for our electric bill. And that happens. People ask churches for charity giving because they see them as a coupon. This is a place that I can get some help from because they, whatever, love Jesus, whatever that is. And we're, we're seen as uh, somebody to use that way. And it'll be somebody that's not part of the church. They call, hey, I'm just calling around to churches. We're having trouble with the electric bill. And I don't know the person's smoking too much or what. I don't know about that. I just know that you've got a problem managing money. If you're calling us and you don't know us, and you're begging for charity. Here's what you do with this, though. Anybody that wants to talk to us, we want to talk to them. <laughs> we are so excited you called. 
I learned this in, I think, one semester, many, many semester of wrestling. The toughest thing I ever did was wrestling at West Point, the, like the, just the, the, the class. That is a hard thing to do. Boxing is very easy to me compared to wrestling because it's so high uh, cardio. Oh, it's just, and, you're, and it's strength too. But what I learned is that if a good wrestler can get a piece of me, I'm in trouble. If he can catch my heel, if he can catch my big toe, if he can catch my elbow, just a part of it, I'm, I'm, in, I'm ruined because he knows what he's going to do once he's got a piece. And this is the grappling thing, the jujitsu thing everybody's doing today. They're going to grab a piece and they're going to use it. They're going to twist it this way and they're going to use it for their agenda. If they call us, we have a program we do when someone calls for, for charity with us. We don't know you, but we're calling. Oh, I'm so glad you called. Please, this is the time we'd like to meet with you. We're available right here, right now. Um, and, and our counselors are standing by. We have something to help you with. We can help you with this need. We'd love to help. And we would also like to talk to you about the real need. And we'll, we're going to do it. We're going to wrestle. And most of the time, um, we don't get to have the second meeting. I don't know why. But... Uh, <laughs> But we will help. We will abide by this in the spirit of it and the letter of it and help how we can. You've heard that it was said in verse 43, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Notice the part that's in all caps, love your neighbor, and the part that's not in all caps and hate your enemy. There are places in the scriptures where hatred is, especially in the Psalms, hatred is, uh, is affirmed. Hatred of sin, hatred of wickedness. You know, there are no tears when uh, the devil is thrown into the lake of fire. Nobody's going to feel sorry for him. There is a legitimate use of hatred in the scriptures, and that's hard for people because it's the only bad word, hatred, except that if you hate people that you think are guilty of hate, that's okay. I don't know how that works. But anyway, um, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. There's no actual Old Testament quote that says hate your enemy. And this is one of those places where Jesus is going to affirm the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, and then he's going to correct the human tradition that's been laid over top of it. He says, but I say to you, love your enemies, not hate your enemy, love your enemies, same word, and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven, for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And he says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? That's 1 Peter 2. It's the same thing. If you love those who love you, hey, this is all going well. They like me. I like them. It's good. There's no reward for this. There's no differential where you are uh, carrying a load for the Lord of any sense. By the power of God's spirit, according to his word, understand it's grace works, but there's no grace works in this that you're just going along with what's comfortable. But if you greet only your brothers, the tax collectors do this, the unbelievers. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? That rhymes. Do, do not even the Gentiles do the same? The unbelievers, tax collectors, Gentiles, same category. Therefore, you're to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's the summary of the Mosaic law teaching that Jesus is giving. Your righteousness, in verse 20, has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, is the opener to this discussion. Then he went through several places in the law and closes with, you have to be as righteous as your heavenly Father's righteous. That's the structure of how he gives his talk on this. He says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and you shall hate your enemy. But I'm saying to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you. And then the majority of manuscripts say, do good to those who hate you and pray for those who abuse you and persecute you. The majority manuscripts uh, agree. Um, most most, most uh, Greek manuscripts of the New Testament say it this way. 
And Luke 6 says these in all manuscripts. All traditions has, have this in Luke 6. So the theory is that they added the Luke 6 material back into Matthew chapter 5. And I think it's probably the same in both. And they've taken some out of Matthew 5 in the, Medor, in the, in the Alexandrian manuscript. Anyway, the, the point is that this is all scripture, whether it's originally in this portion or not. Man, this is a heavy lift. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Notice the opposite, opposition, blessing and cursing. Loving and, hate, loving and those who hate you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who abuse you. Prayer is verbal. Abuse here and persecution is likely verbal. Notice you're, you're opposite all the way through. It's very like Proverbs, oppositional. <laughs> so that you may become sons of your Father in heaven. Become is genomai. It's the common word for becoming. If you have a, a word for, for being that, that becomes something. Um, but it also can mean be. So you may be sons of your father in heaven. Because his son, S-U-N, he causes to rise on the wicked and the good. He sends rain upon the righteous and the unrighteous. Now look at this. Look at this list of, of how to think about the law of retaliation. You just don't push back. You don't need to insist on your own. Now this is like the piece de resistance. The whole Mosaic law, Jesus summarizes as love of God, the first four commandments of the, Mosa- of the Ten Commandments, and love your neighbor for God's sake. That's the last six commandments. That's, Jesus says, this is, this is the summary of the law. Y'all aware? Now think about it. Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God. Leviticus 19.18, you love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, this summarizes the law, and it does. It's love. What is the law? It's love. It's God's command to love now. This is a heavy lift where he's saying, this is the heart of the law. Love your enemies. Now, who does that? But God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Who does this loves his enemies? See, we're at enmity with God without Christ. We're separated from him across a chasm that cannot be crossed because of our sin. And we're God's enemy. And yet he came to save us. I said earlier, we're the damsel in distress and the story, the hero of the story is God. We're not just the damsel, we're also the dragon. We're the problem, in a sense. Love your enemies. He did it for you. Bless those who curse you. Do you remember the story of the the two fellows at the cross? Jesus is in the middle and you get the two, um, two other guys. In one account, they're both reviling him. In another account, one of them says, He's righteous and we're not. And remember me in your father's kingdom. And both passages, both gospels are correct. At one point, they're both reviling him. They're both cursing him. But, at, but one of them has a change of heart and he changes his tune as he speaks to Jesus. That's a beautiful turn. There's no greater persecutor of the church than the apostle Paul as Saul of Tarsus. That's your greatest enemy, the greatest enemy of the church that wanted to strangle that baby church in its infancy. The one who is most aggressive to destroy us as we're just getting started is Saul of Tarsus. And there's nobody who's given us a clearer picture of who Jesus is and what he wants for us because God did something. Love your enemies. You never know. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Well, wait a second. What you're trying to say, what sounds like you're saying, surely you're not saying this, Pastor. What you're saying is if somebody does something bad to me, I'm supposed to return that bad thing with a good thing? I'm not doing it. No, I'm sorry. That's just a little bit much. Let's, let's go back to hermeneutics. 
So can this please be about what God wanted them to do back then, but we have a different role now? Can it be that? Can that be the spirit of things? No, because he's going to the very ingredients. He's going to the formula of the law. It's the spirit of the thing. It's the spirit of God's dealings with man. This is Jonah. You and I are Jonah when we are supposed to go preach to the Assyrians. I don't want God to be gracious to the Assyrians. They're evil. The Ninevites, the capital of Assyria. I hate them. They've killed our wives and our children. I hate them. I want them to be destroyed. And God, if I preach the gospel, I know if I preach repentance to them, I know that they'll repent and God will relent. They'll repent. God will relent. Our nation's living proof. We've been in idolatry. We've been guilty of all these horrible things and God hasn't destroyed us yet. He's been faithful when we've repented. So I know he'll do it when the Ninevites do it. And he hates them. And the point of the book of Jonah is you're not thinking like your father in heaven. We have to make this adjustment. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who abuse you and persecute you. I think of all of these, the easiest way I can love the enemy is to pray for him. That's the easiest one. I am safe in my father's arms. It's a safe place to go to my heavenly father. I can just talk to him about it. And I can say, I know you want me to talk to you about this person and pray for this person. Okay, I can, I can do that. It's, it's the next step of heaping coals on their head. Um, one expositor once said he had this person, he's a 30-year veteran pastor, and he said there was this person in ministry who had really hurt him, really defrauded him, really really damaged him, and um, tried to destroy him. And you're like, that's all in church, church people. You know, those good Christians. Good Christian men rejoice. He said, um, I had thought I'd wrestle with this, I prayed about this. You know, I just went over to his house, I saw his grass was a little high, I went and cut his grass. Took my lawnmower, put it in the trunk of my car because I don't have a truck and drove it over there and cut his grass as a direct attempt to obey this. I, he needed it done. It was a good thing he needed done. I, he said, you know, it really helped me to do that. It helped me to go do something that was needed for that person who was so destructive. He said, also, we've got the verse that you're heaping coals on their head in Romans 12, so thought that might be helpful too. I think what that means though is that you're making it so uncomfortable for the person to persist in their wickedness that they have to they have to come back to the light. But the reason you do this is not so that they'll like you, not so that you'll feel better about yourself, not so that you get anything out of it. I'm not doing the good thing that God's telling me to do so that you will think I'm a good person or so that people will see it. That's chapter six. It doesn't matter what men think. The reason I do this is because I want to be called or become a son of my father in heaven. This is how God acts. This is how I want to act. Be uh, imitators of God as beloved children, so walk in love as we have an example of Christ in 1 Corinthians, second, um, as we have in one of Paul's letters, uh, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, sorry. He sends rain upon the righteous and the unrighteous. There is in this challenge a change of heart for all of us when we're wronged. We now have our conscience calibrated. We know what we're supposed to do. There's no reason to do this if there's no God. There's no reason to think this way if God isn't active, if your God is deist and he just, you know, set things in motion, he's not acting. But if the biblical God is and he's working and you're beholden to him, then this is the order of the day. Again, it makes no sense without him. 
it totally presupposes that you're trusting in him. And you care what he thinks. But they'll, but they'll get away. They won't. He's there. He's working in the situation. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. If you welcome your loved one or your brother only, what more are you doing? Don't the tax collectors in the majority of manuscripts do this? Therefore, you are to be telios, perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, I just quit then. I can't. I can't be. Jesus kills us in the beginning and end of this with the law. The law's job is to show you that you need a Savior. Having a Savior, let me ask you, what's your ethic about retaliation? What's your ethic about getting your, your treatment the way you want to be treated? If it doesn't involve God is there, he's got a plan, and I'm going to represent him in the situation. If you're not looking at God with the eyes of faith before you look at the problem, then you're not really enjoying the benefit of your spiritual life. You can do this, believers, because your Father in heaven has made you righteous in Christ. Our Father, we thank you for the eternal life that is our privilege and the challenge of the gospel. Father, we've heard it in many different ways today, but um, we want to say it directly, that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead because we as sinners can do nothing to save ourselves from our sin. Father, our hopelessness, our wretchedness, our status as um, people in desperate need of salvation is evident in every page of Scripture. It is the grand narrative of your revelation. We Influenced by your enemy, the devil, we are the problem because we're sinners. And even as your enemies, you sent your son to pay for our sins so that we could have eternal life. Father, what a tragedy that Jesus is the propitiation or the satisfaction for our sins and not ours only, but the whole world, and that mostly the whole world rejects the sacrifice, rejects that satisfaction, rejects knowing you through your son. But Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so we pray for our family, our friends, our loved ones, and those hearing today that that message of eternal life only in Jesus Christ, only in what he did, by simple faith, trusting in him as our Savior from our sins, from the penalty of sin, our Savior to give us eternal life. Fathers, we trust in him. We have the life. He who has the life, who has the Son, has the life. Father, I ask that the church family here would live this life individually in our households and as we serve you together with one another, that we would live this righteousness that we hunger and thirst for. You promised through your son that if we did hunger and thirst for righteousness, we'd be filled. Don't let us become legalistic. Don't let us be self-righteous. Let us be poor in spirit as we must until the resurrection. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.